great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you have here tonight, boys. That's what you've earned here tonight. Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, director of the Tulane Sports Law Program and co-director of the Tulane Center for Sports. After a brief hiatus, the pod is back to break down a major developing issue in college sports. In the midst of what might be the most transformational time for college sports in our lifetime, the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board, Jennifer Abruzzo, made a big splash when she wrote a memo concluding that college football players at FBS schools are employees. What does this mean for the future of college sports? Will this open the door for college athletes to be paid to play, to form a union? To help break down what the memo from the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel means for the future of college sports, I'm joined on this episode by the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel. Here we go. Welcome, Jennifer Abruzzo, to the podcast, General Counsel of the National Labor Relations Board. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Gabe. Okay, so let's jump right in. We, we have a lot to talk about. You have very much been in the news lately for those who pay attention to college sports. And I have a lot of people who listen to this podcast who care very deeply about college sports, but do not know anything about labor law and don't know anything about collective bargaining or the NLRA or the NLRB. And one of the fun things being in the sports industry and teaching sports law is it does give me an opportunity to teach underlying areas of law because people want to understand the sports industry better. And as I always say, you can't truly understand sports unless you understand the law and how the law applies to sports. So before we dig into the details of your memo and and what it might mean, if you could just give a quick primer on what the National Labor Relations Act is, what the role of the National Labor Relations Board is, and what your role as general counsel of the board is. Sure. So in a nutshell, the National Labor Relations Act protects the rights of workers to engage collectively with one another to improve their wages, benefits, and other working conditions. The NLRB is bifurcated. There there are five board members who adjudicate cases, and there is a general counsel My office oversees the investigation and prosecution of unfair labor practice charges, as well as the processing of representation case petitions to determine whether employees wish to have a union represent them in collective bargaining with their employer. And as general counsel, I also serve as the uh, chief administrative officer for the entire agency operation. Great. Thank you very much for that. This reminds me of when I was, this is about 10 years ago when the NFL had their, uh, one of their big lockouts and I was on radio with Bobby Bear, who some of you may know is a quarterback for the Saints and nicknamed the Cajun Cannon. And we had a radio interview and he said, Gabe, I have a really important question all my listeners want to hear. The answer to is, does the Norris LaGuardia Act, can that really be used to block a court from enjoining an illegal lockout? And I said, wow, this is great former NFL quarterback is asking about the Norris LaGuardia Act. So (laughs) this is step two in that process. I'm glad I got a chuckle out of you because if I couldn't get the general counsel, the NLRB to laugh at that joke, nobody was ever going to laugh at that joke. It's a a pretty (laughs) narrow audience. Before we get into the specifics of the memo that everybody is talking about, can you tell us more generally about 
when and why these memos are used, because I think people are, are used to reading judicial opinions, but not necessarily memos from the GC of the NLRB. So can you tell us just more generally what and why and how these are used? Sure. So my goals as, as general counsel are to educate, protect, and enforce. Very simple. Simple to say, difficult in right. practice. Really, those are my fundamental goals. So these memos that I'm issuing are really a means to educate workers, employers, unions, advocates, community organizations, practitioners, and frankly, the public writ large about the rights and obligations under the NLRA. And I'm using these public guidance memos to ensure that I'm being transparent about my current thinking regarding case law and regarding my initiatives. And and frankly, I'm very grateful for the interest in this memo. There's uh, college sports is of tremendous interest in this country to many people. The interest means that we're reaching audiences that might not normally be ones that are aware of our agency and the rights we protect. So for me, I thank you because this is a great outreach opportunity to reach those that we may not normally reach. You're welcome, but I'm glad to do it. And it really is part of my approach is I teach law to those who want to get into sports, but I also use sports to help teach the law. So this is a really good opportunity to teach, as you said, some areas that people may not be aware of and and to understand your agency and to understand the role of union and collective bargaining in general, not just in in college sports, obviously. Okay, so given that the idea of educating and providing guidance, and and this is obviously not the only memo you have written since you've, you've been the GC, why was this particular one written now? What was your thought process in addressing the potential application of the NLRA to college athletes? So what I will say is until I left the NLRB in December of 2017, after the administration had shifted, I'd been with the NLRB for about 23 years. And during the latter time that I was at the agency, I was involved in the issuance of a number of GC memos when I was the deputy general counsel. One of the memos was GC 1701, which we put out after the board members issued a decision, which, pardon what I'm about to say here, but the board members basically punted (laughs) on the issue of whether or not football players at Northwestern University were statutory employees. And We felt at the time that they were, at least based upon the facts as we knew them, because we in our regional office, one of our regional offices actually where the petition was filed, which was, of course, in Chicago, had done a full-blown hearing and obtained a tremendous amount of factual information. And based on that information, we felt that they were uh, statutory employees. And we issued a memo to that effect. That memo um, was rescinded by my predecessor, the former general counsel. So after my Senate confirmation and arrival back to the agency in July, I wanted to reinstate and update that memo to reflect the position that we had already taken in 2017, which I felt was bolstered by events that occurred since then, 
including the Supreme Court decision in NCAA versus Alston, which said that college sports is a profit-making enterprise and rejected the notion of amateurism. And then in response to that, the NCAA suspended name, image, and likeness rules for players, which certainly opened the door for them to profit from autographs and public appearances, endorsements, and making them much more akin to professional football players who are, you know, clearly statutory employees. And as to the attention on this issue right now, it it seems to me that, as Justice Kavanaugh actually said in his concurrence in, in Alston, that folks are just questioning the justification for not paying players a fair share of the billions of dollars in revenue that they generate for their institutions who control significant aspects of the players' daily lives, including the number of practices and training and competition hours they put in. So I think there's a real movement even beyond college athletics in this country in the broader sense to ensure that workers are not exploited but rather that they get the pay and protections and equal opportunities that they deserve. Thank you for that explanation. And I think it does highlight an important point that although this is obviously a very significant memo, that this is not a new determination made by your agency. And and as you said, back back in 2017, and then we had the Northwestern case, that it's interesting just to hear that this is you just reinforcing or now with the change of parties, you have the ability to, to make this the advice from the NLRB. And as I understand it, the your predecessor issued a number of memos that rescinded what, what you, his predecessor had written. And now you're in the process of rescinding those to get things back to where they were in, in 2017. And the memo itself, you, you've touched on a few of these points, but I think people read the headlines and the stories, but can you summarize what you think are the, are the key points of the memo? For those who, again, are, are primarily interested in college athletics and may not have a, a deep understanding of, of the law. Sure. I, I think I would say first and foremost, that whether someone's considered an employee or not, is not determined by their employer's label of them. It's based on the law. And under the common law and the National Labor Relations Act, which is the statute that I enforce, I believe that certain players at academic institutions are statutory employees because they perform services for their colleges, universities, conferences, NCAA, in return for compensation and are subject to their control. And what's really important here that people need to know is that as a statutory employee, you have the full protection of the NLRA. You have the right to act together, improve your compensation, your benefits, your health and safety, other working or playing conditions, And if you are not a statutory employee, you don't have any of those legal protections. So it's extremely important to have employee status if you engage in collective action and want and need the protections of the statute to avoid being retaliated against. And if you are retaliated against, to have those violations addressed quickly and remedied quickly. So that's the number one thing, how important it is to have employee status versus not. Secondly, I think, uh, as I said in the memo, and it's worth honing in on, 
to the extent that these players continue to be misclassified as student athletes and led to believe by word or by deed that they have no statutory rights and protections, that chills them from exercising the rights to engage in collective action. And that misclassification to me is an independent violation of the statute. And it's something, frankly, that we've raised when I was deputy general counsel in terms of the independent contractor status and certain employees, certain workers who actually, in fact, were employees, but were being misclassified as independent contractors. We saw an independent violation of the act. Now, the board majority at that time did not agree with us, but I think this board majority may have I hope they have a different opinion and we'll certainly bring, in, bring cases regarding misclassification of true employees as an independent violation to the board for consideration. And then the third final point that I'd like to hone in on from the memo is that as to jurisdiction and potential liability of colleges, universities, conferences, and other employing entities for violations of our statute in applying the NLRB's current joint employer rule, should the facts lead to the conclusion that the NCAA and athletic conferences exert direct, immediate, and substantial control over some of the players' essential terms and conditions, I'm going to pursue a joint employer theory of liability. And I would also note that even though the NLRA only has jurisdiction over private sector entities, since conferences are independent private entities that are created by member schools, some of whom are private institutions, I certainly think that we have jurisdiction over them. So I think those are the three pieces, employee status, misclassification, and then uh, potential joint liability. Great. That's that's really helpful. And, and so let's take each one of the, and if I could just ask you a couple of follow-up questions. On the, in the memo, it, it discusses scholarship FBS football players at private schools. Again, that's a specific jurisdiction here, but it, it says that it, it may also apply to similarly situated people and putting aside who else might be similarly situated outside of college athletics. What other college athletes might fit within there? Because I think people want to know, does this apply to men's and women's basketball? Does it apply to Olympic sports? Does it apply to uh, women's sports? And so looking at the, the the factors you mentioned in the common law test that provide services for compensation and, and they're within the control, you know, one can make an argument that they all fit that definition. The, there is, a, I think, in one of the factors you mentioned in the memo, reference to the fact that they generate a lot of revenue. And obviously that would separate out the revenue generating sports from the Olympic sports and the non-revenue generating sports. Uh, and there's discussion of that in the Northwestern case and, and other memos, whether the revenue generation may or may not be critical. But from your perspective, how broadly will this apply to other college athletes? I think it could broadly apply to other college athletes at every private school, including female athletes. If, as you say, if the facts establish that, and they likely would, that they perform a service for their institutions or subject to their institution's control or right to control if they're granted compensation in whatever form, grant and aid or whatever form that may be, that enhances the determination of employee status. I don't feel that the profit, the revenue generating or profit making aspect is dispositive. And so I, I think that this would have 
significantly broad application across all college athletes at private schools. But as you said, I hope this memo also has a broader reach for all workers who are, in fact, statutory employees, but have been led to believe that they're not, including those in the gig economy who've been classified as independent contractors. So on that note, on the misclassification aspect, and that, I think, sent some sort of shockwaves through a lot of people, and people were looking to see what is Mark Emmert, how is he going to refer to college athletes the next time there is a uh, a congressional hearing or, or they put out any kind of statement. So is there a, is there an intent element there? Because there, there are, obviously, as I think we all know at this point, that the term student athlete was invented to avoid legal liability, to, to avoid the conclusion that college athletes were employees. And there's no real question about that. But a lot of terms, they've lost their original meaning, for better or worse, and so if somebody is innocently using the, the term student athlete just because that's what they've used for the last 10, 20 years versus somebody referring to it as student athlete to emphasize that they're not employees, is, is there a difference there? Or is it or are people in college athletics now on notice that if they use the phrase student athlete, that the, the board might conceive that as an attempt to misclassify and deny them their statutory rights? As you said, I think you're right. The term was created to deprive players of workplace protections beyond the NLRA to wage hour, FLSA, Title VII, worker comp, et cetera. But I I think, you know, that, and, and I will say, when I what I said in the memo was that if they're labeled student athletes and led to believe by word or by deed that they have no protections under the statute. And what I mean by that is if, for example, a college says, hey, this memo, she doesn't know what she's talking about. You guys are not like you're amateurs or you're student athletes and you're not employees and we're going to fight this to the that by word leads them to believe they have no protections. And I would say that's a violation of the act. Got it. So, uh, so this is not about falling into a trap of accidentally mentioning the term. It's- no, although I would say to that, misstatements of the law, for example, if they say, hey, we, our lawyers have said you're not employees under the statute. And right. so we're going to go forward on that premise. And that's a misstatement. They don't get a pass. And then just quickly on the joint employer issue, and for those who, who don't necessarily understand why that is such a big issue. I did a really good job of explaining that the board and the act only have jurisdiction over private employers and the significant majority of college football programs, at least the division one are public schools. And so the argument there is that they would not be subject to the, the board's ruling. And there are many States that have laws that explicitly prohibit public employees from unionizing, and then even more specifically, college athletes from unionizing. And and a way around that would be if there is a, if there is this joint employer status, so it's not only the school, but the conference, you just said the conference is private. And, And that would minimize, if not eliminate, the issue that was raised when the board punted on Northwestern. And I, I punting, I guess, is just to go back to you to saying you're not sure if you should use that word. I guess it's the right word because you can punt something down the road and then try to pick it up later. But at least in football, you're usually punting it too. So then it's like, all right, somebody else's job to then handle the ball. So this is more like they threw it out of bounds or something. I just don't, I don't, the punting word may not be accurate enough here. So we, we may need to figure that one out. But anyway. I don't know. So, I think they punted it to the general counsel's office and we responded by yeah. issuing okay. GC 1701. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. So you then what? You threw it? You ran it? We ran it. 
You ran it. Okay. All right. That's fair. I'll accept that. Okay. Uh, On the joint employer status, if they're not found to be joint employers, if they're only employed by the institutions, so then you still have that public-private issue. Do you think there is a way around the concerns expressed by the board in the Northwestern decision where they didn't rule on the actual employee status and said they said this wouldn't further the, the goals of the NLRA because of that disparity between the publics and the privates and, and it would just be a mess. So again, the joint employer is a way to get around that mess. But if there is no joint employer status, do you agree or disagree with the, the board's decision in Northwestern? I think there's been a lot of intervening events that have occurred since the board's decision. And I think if you were actually to poll the, those board members now, they may might come out differently. But what I would say is if there's no joint employer determination, it's because the conference or the NCAA was not found to have sufficient control over the player's condition. So if one team institutes certain collectively bargained terms, in essence, it should have no impact on the other teams or conferences or divisions. But I would say in order to have effective collective bargaining, you need to have the right folks in the room. So if NCAA has a lot of control over the players at various teams with regard to eligibility standards, detailed rules, compliance requirements, whatever, and the teams ensure those enforced, then they both should be at the bargaining table. But I, and I would also say that there's nothing stopping, or unless I shouldn't say there's nothing stopping, under the NLRA, there's certainly nothing stopping academic institutions from voluntarily recognizing and collectively bargaining with public institutions. Okay. And, and so, the it's interesting the the point that the NCAA makes repeatedly, particularly in antitrust cases, is they are interdependent. You, you can't have college football without an agreement among all the schools and, and all the conferences, and, and that may actually hurt them in in this context because that that plays into the argument that they are joint employers. That a decision that one school makes affects all schools, and, and they make that that's argument right. repeatedly in the NIL context. That's why they need uniformity of, of laws. So, what is the message for? college athletes? What, what, what would you say if, if you had a group of college athletes in front of you, what would you be telling them they should take from the memo? I, I would say if you exercise your right to organize and bargain through representatives, if you so choose, the NLRB is here to protect your free choice. And if you exercise your right to otherwise engage with one another to improve your playing conditions and you're unlawfully retaliated against that, retaliated against for doing that, then the NLRB here is here to litigate and remedy any violation of our, in essence, we're saying we are here for you. So don't feel that you can't act together to try to improve your circumstances. And uh, I would imagine it's fair to say that in, in most cases, the, the, the policy of the board and the act is that employees can get more leverage and, and have more protection if they do act collectively. And do you have any fear that might not be the case here with college athletes, that there may be some downside because of the potential unique elements of college athletics that they should be concerned about? I don't think so. I think that, first of all, there's there's strength in numbers, right? And, and the more players that are involved in addressing crucial collective concerns, the better because then there, there's less likely the situation where a spokesperson or a few spokespeople will get 
retaliated against, it, it could happen. The more people are engaged, the better off the collective is. But I, I think that players are actually getting more sophisticated and they certainly know that pro football players are unionized. So it shouldn't be a deterrent for players to exercise their statutory rights. But I, I certainly understand the challenges here, but I think that situation is similar to many other examples of challenges facing all unions when they try to organize a group for purposes of helping them improve their terms and conditions. So I don't see this as necessarily being different. I think unions around the country writ large face challenge as, and, and, and the workers that they're helping to organize face challenges just because of the employer opposite. And just there are trade-offs and there'll be trade-offs here. So one of the trade-offs, and this is maybe a different type of trade-off than, than would exist in, in many unions, is the fear that's been expressed by those in college athletics that if the college football players are recognized as employees and are able to be paid for their play or able to form a union and, and negotiate for pay, that would have a negative impact on the non-revenue sports and the women's sports. D do you have any uh, opinion on that? Yeah. So I, I would hope that the consequence of players rightfully being classified as statutory employees would not lead schools to spend less in other areas of college athletics. And again, the test is performing services for an institution and that institution having control or, or right to control over significant aspects of their daily lives. And as I said, I don't feel that while compensation so certainly bolsters fi a finding of employee status, it's not dispositive. And I don't believe that the revenue generating or profit making aspect is dispositive either. I, it's all about academic institutions providing equal opportunities for everyone. That's what they should be doing and what they're going to be required to do. And frankly, what they're already required to do under statute. I've heard this before, but I'm hoping that the impact, there, there won't be a significant impact on other players in other sports. And then what about Title IX? Is there, you know, a lot of people said if, if they become employees, then they might not be subject to Title IX anymore. And that would you know, significantly shift the amount of spending on presumably mostly male sports. Do you have any thoughts on, on that? I, I, I presume that this would then be covered under Title VII, the Equal Pay Act, if, if they're all employees. But does that does this sort of eliminate Title IX if, if they are employees? I, I don't think so. Again, I think it's all about providing equal opportunities for all with regard to work, to playing conditions, including physical, emotional protections for this particular co cohort. And as you correctly noted, I certainly think that there could be implications with Title VII and the Equal Pay Act because we as workplace protection agencies guard against disparate treatment, particularly as a strategy to avoid an employee determination and commensurate statutory protections. And in particular, along gender lines. Again, I think what, what everyone needs to keep in mind is this is about providing equal opportunities for all. Okay, and then two quick questions because I know you have to run. There's parallel litigation going on around the FLSA and there was a case decided fairly recently that denied a motion to dismiss by the NCAA. The NCAA argued that the college athletes are not employees and therefore not entitled to protection under FLSA. And there's 
I was a number of cases that have agreed with the NCAA there. What's the interplay between the board, the NLRB, and, and Department of Labor and, and how these cases are decided? Are, are you watching each other? Or are you, I know you're not necessarily bound by the other, but but are you, if one domino falls, do they all fall? I don't think so. Frankly, the FLSA has an even broader employee status definition than the NLRA. It's to suffer or permit. But I think because there are two different, certainly I'm looking at, you're talking about the Johnson case. I'm looking yeah, at, yeah. at the cases, obviously, but since they it's two different statutes with different language, I, I think that what it's going to require, regardless of how the court comes out, is an amendment by Congress. And uh, with regard to the NLRA, there's already, Congress has already made proposals both in the Senate and the House. And certainly the outcome of the Johnson case could be the impetus for further litigation or proposed litigation that I think what should happen, if you were to ask me, is that Congress should enact very broad, consistent employee definitions in all workplace protection statutes including the FSA, NLRA, and and OSHA, and et cetera. It's just right now there's a lot of inconsistency. And we are under one umbrella in the sense that we are labor, we, we are worker protection agencies that have labor and employment laws that we're trying to enforce. And I, I think a congressional mandate that define all workers extremely broadly would be a nice and consistent message for everyone. And, and okay, last question. If you look down the, in the future, three, four, five years, whatever it might be, and you can imagine that college athletes are employees, that they they have unionized, they're collectively bargaining with whatever the, whether it's the, the conference, the school, the association, how do you get from where we are right now to there? What's the sort of the, the big steps for how that would play out. I just want to, I, I should just say um, at the forefront, what I've put out there, I am confident that this current National Labor Relations Board will agree with me and we'll see more college athletes and other workers who may have been led to think that they're not protected under the statute, feel confident to elevate their voices which leads to much more opportunities for improvements to their current circumstances. But I will say that we as an agency do not have independent investigatory authority. And so we rely on people and entities to bring cases to us. Neither the, certainly not the NLRB is not going to see a case, you know, I've got prosecutorial discretion to bring cases to them. And certainly if a case, if a case regarding this issue comes to me, I will certainly forward that, litigate it, and have the board make an ultimate determination on it. But I can't do that if players or other entities don't bring the cases to us. So it's the, the first step is to have these cases come in and then for the NLRB to make a finding that they are, in fact, statutory employees. And then we go from there with regard to ensuring that they their collective bargaining rights are fully effectuated and they really are having a voice in their work, in their playing conditions. Yeah. And it's interesting, just last note that, as you note in your memo, that college athletes, and you noted earlier on our, in our conversation, that they do understand the power of collective action, even if it's not in the context of a union. And we've seen the 
social change, moving to racial justice, the, the, the power of athletes joining together. And then the question is whether they want to take that sort of the, the next more formal step and we'll see. But it's interesting, you know, as you describe it, that first step is education and making sure that they are not being denied or, or misled about their rights. And maybe that will cause them to take more concerted action. And then maybe we do get a case that comes your way. It'll be very interesting to watch it all play out. Certainly a lot going on in college sports, a lot going on in the NLRB world beyond college sports. So I very much appreciate you taking the time to come on and explain this so well to, to everybody. And, and I can't thank you enough. So thank you. And yeah. if there are further developments, I'd love to have you back on again. Gabe, I just want to say one thing as to that last comment that you made. I do think we're going to see more collective bargaining over compensation and protections and benefits and other working conditions that take into account the value these players provide to institutions. I And I also think to the extent that these institutions don't take to heart that players are significant contributors to their enterprises and and treat them accordingly, I think we're going to see more collective action, including these social and political advocacy, which in my mind has a direct nexus to the players' interests as employees. And, you know, that includes racial inequities and disparate treatment in playing conditions that they may be experiencing or protests over health and safety protections that they're not getting. That's why I think it's crucial for colleges and players through representatives, if they so choose, sit down and deal with these issues so they don't percolate and create a charged atmosphere that's not conducive to successful teamwork. And just a final note, Justice Kavanaugh, even in Austin, said that one mechanism by which the colleges and players can resolve these the questions of compensation and other things is to engage in collective bargaining. And that's what our agency is congressionally mandated to encourage and protect. So I, I hope the message is out there. I, I truly appreciate you having me on and I'm happy to talk about this or any other issue further. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. And thank you, as always, to my loyal sponsor, RipBest. As the weather turns colder, make sure you're prepared. Rip best. See you all next time between the lines. I've often been asked in the years since Lake Placid, what was the best moment for me? Well, I was here. The sight of 20 young men of such differing backgrounds. Now standing as one.